This is Ian Hartley. I'm Warren Kay. And I am Sasha Steenbergen. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. Today we continue in our journey through the book of Genesis, and uh, last episode we talked about uh, Genesis 18, where uh, God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarah's name to, or Sarah, Sarai's name to Sarah, and uh, and then there was this visit with three visitors, um, and. Um, they had a dialogue about Sodom and Gomorrah, and um, Abraham kind of takes God to task for destroying a city if there were righteous people there, and negotiated how many people, uh, if he found uh, there, that uh, would keep from destroying the city, and uh, and got him down to something like ten people, and so. Uh, God and the angels went on their way, and Abraham uh, went back to his tent, hoping that that would keep the city from being destroyed. So the next chapter, chapter 19, where we move into today, uh, tells the story of uh, what happens in the city when the angels arrive. And so, Sasha, if you would start us off with uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there, and when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come to my home to wash your feet and be my guests for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Lot's hospitality really mirrors Abraham's hospitality in every way. Um, Perhaps he learned it from his uncle, or perhaps it was just part of the culture of these nomads from the Chaldees. Um, any event, he, he displays this hospitality. Um, it says that he was sitting at the gate, the entrance to the city. There would have been other people there. None of them offered hospitality. Uh, but Lot, uh, so just uh, uh, speculating a little bit, is that uh, Lot was a pastoralist before he became uh, a city slicker. Mm. So he probably had converted his stock into money and invested in house and government in Sodom. So he must have had some standing in the city. That's why he's sitting at the gate mean like he's a member of parliament or member of the city council. So we're ready for verse 3. Oh no, they replied. We'll just spend the night out here in the city square. But Lot insisted. So at last they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with fresh bread made without yeast, and they ate. 
So it's interesting that Abram's feast and Lot's feast both include fresh bread. Again, that could just be standard culture practice, um, but it's, it's there. Um, and these are clearly angels. So <laughs> do angels have digestive systems like us or um, does the bread just disappear? Um, <laughs> you know, for some people, um, this is idle speculation, but uh, for me, it's kind of interesting just to think about these things. I don't have to come to a conclusion, but I, I like to be aware of um, what the implications are for myself. What about you guys? Am I wasting your time or? <laughs> you can say yes. I'm not going to sulk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hadn't thought about it actually. You know, it, it is it is rather interesting to think. You know, if they ate, um, obviously they ate the food that Lot provided for them, and uh, yeah, I, I never thought about that. I mm. I guess I'd always just believed that even though they were angels, they they took on a human form when they came, and so they would have uh, would have been a lot more like us than we suspect so yeah. we have a word for that it's called uh, theophany um, now theophany means that god takes on human form for a little while mm. not incarnation which is what jesus did he actually became human um, but periodically somebody um, comes from outside the planet and appears like somebody from the planet. And I, I don't know what to call it. They're not God. Uh, the third person was God. So that was a theophany. So this might be an angelophany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. so, well, now that you raised it, though, it's interesting because I was just wondering about the meeting that they would have had with God before coming down, where obviously this was outlined about what the mission here was. And I'm just thinking that I don't know if these angels had been the same ones that came, you know, with Abraham or Abram at the time, uh, or if they were different ones. Um, but knowing what is to come, I wonder how they must have felt uh, having been only in heaven and what life is like there in the sense of peace and love um but understanding also what's to come i wonder how they felt about it and what that experience would be like you know uh, sasha you very reliable to relate everything to your heart uh, <laughs> and here i am relating everything to my head thank you <laughs> for rounding this up <laughs> So uh, we are now on verse 4 and 5. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, What are the men who came to spend the night with you? Or where are the men? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Um, so just a reminder again that Lot is a newbie in this town. Uh, he wasn't born here. He, he's an alien who's taken up residence. And uh, 
the, the men of Sodom might have suspected that he was harboring spies. Um, so they might have might have had some reason for being suspicious uh, of these strangers. You know, there are two um, facets of this story about Sodom that we have to deal with. Uh, one is um, what is the relationship uh, that God expects us uh, to have with uh, people who have a homosexual orientation? Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, also the practice, which is different to the orientation. Uh, and so this is a huge passage for people who are anti having any sort of um, acceptance of homosexuality in society. Uh, there are cultures which even to this day believe that homosexuals uh, should be executed or in prison. Perhaps you don't know, but the, the man who broke the German code during the Second World War and gave the Allies access to what the the Germans were planning to do because they could now read the messages was a homosexual man. Yeah. And he was tried and put in jail and he actually took his own life. Yeah. So th this isn't something that's hundreds of years ago. Um, this is very current uh, in terms of perspective uh, for Christian countries and then, of course, Islamic countries, just uh, their stated way of dealing with homosexuality is by execution. Mm -hmm. And the same is true in some African countries today. So it's really interesting to look at a little bit of the history of homosexuality and how some Christians deal with it today. So uh, I want us to read Leviticus 18, verse 22 and 28. Leviticus 18, 22, 28. This is to give us historical background. Leviticus 18, 22 to 28? Uh, just 22 and 28. Oh, 22 and 28. Do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, it is a detestable sin, so do not defile the land and give it a reason to vomit you out, as it will vomit out the people who live there now. Thank you. Verse 29. Whoever commits any of these detestable sins will be cut off from the community of Israel. So that's a euphemism for being executed, to be cut off. Uh, so that's the, the mosaic ruling on homosexuality that's very clear uh, there's not much uh, um, liberty for debate on the issue um, however uh, you know we have a phenomenon known as prison rape i'm talking about male prisons and um, prison rape it's not so much about sexuality as about uh, power. Uh, this might have been about power rather than about sexual. I remind you that the reason given in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 13, is that violence filled the land. 
And so uh, Sodom's sin might have been more about violence uh, than homosexuality. Now, I'm not trying to uh, suggest that there isn't there aren't bad consequences to the practice of homosexuality. Um, what I'm saying is that we we need to uh, understand complex issues and complex stories and not uh, trivialize them and make them focused on one particular aspect of the story. I think you'll see that as we go along. Um, the narrative suggests that this, uh, the active, the agents in this uh, proposed violence were all the men of Sodom. Now, yeah. it's highly unlikely that all the men of Sodom would have been homosexuals. Yeah, exactly. I, that was a point I was going to make too. It's that's pretty unlikely that that would be the case. So let's get on with the story a little bit and look at uh, verses six to eight. Uh, so Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone, for they are my guests and are under my protection. Oh, so, that's hard to read. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to ask you to read that again because it was gobbled at some point. Oh, sorry. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them as you wish. But please, leave these men alone, for they are my guests and are under my protection. So, wow. Um, the, the only mitigating argument that I can give you uh, to support what is apparently uh, lot valuing complete strangers to him over and above his daughters is that possibly he thought that if he made the suggestion, he would shame the men of Sodom so that they would go home and nothing would happen. Mm. I mean, I cannot believe that he would be uh, willing to, to sacrifice his two daughters uh, in this situation. What about the two of you? It's horrific just to even read it. Like, it just hurts the words coming out of my mouth. Yeah. 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 It's unthinkable that that he that he was serious about what he was offering. Imagining that we're talking about an entire city, supposedly, of men, young and old, all surrounding his house. I mean, it's a barbaric thought. We are at the same time confronted with a story in Judges chapter 19. Um, and this is such a horrific story, I just prefer not to read it. Um, but what happens is an old man offers protective hospitality to a Levite and his concubine, concubine from a violent mob. He offers his virgin daughters a sex object in place of his guests. And this seems to have been an acceptable practice of that time. 
it's an unbelievable idea for our thinking today. Uh, and it's no wonder that um, some people think that the Old Testament should be banned as literature in schools because mm. of stories like this. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the, the concubine is raped to death. Mm-hmm. Then her owner um, cuts her up in 12 pieces and sends a piece to each tribe. Uh, to to explain or reveal the enormity of the act of these wicked uh, people in Benjamin. Yeah. So, uh, well, seemed... and so... yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say in this case here too, with this practice, it doesn't seem to matter whether it's men or women here. It's literally like you, I think what you're saying here is that this is an act of aggression and violence uh, with no regard for human life, whether it be male or female. And so I really have a hard time with the idea that this is even speaking on uh, homosexuality, but I think that it's speaking on um, uh, violating uh, people, no matter who they are. And uh, I was just thinking as you started talking about it, um, the uh, the author of the book and Warren, I know we spoke about it at one point. Do you remember uh, the young gentleman who was um, who wrote the book uh, about those uh, texts about homosexuality? Um, it has a really great uh, simple oh. name, which escapes me right now. Unclobbered. Um, Thank you. Yes. And that's a really powerful book uh, when we're talking about this issue here. Uh, Yeah, Colby Martin. And um, just thankful that we are talking about this because I feel like this has been an issue that has been so near and dear to my heart for years and years. I don't know why. It just has been somehow representative to me at the very core about uh, whether we are loved um, by God and whether he accepts us for who we are. And not that I am a homosexual myself. However, I always felt that um, if if uh, these issues were not something that I could feel that if I was, that I would be just held in the heart of God and that he would accept me as I am and would wish also for me to be able to experience love here on this earth in a partnered relationship, um, that I just didn't feel that I was able to have this trust in God. So this uh, topic to me is, is very, very important. And having answers, I think, for this or being able to talk about this openly has really, really helped me in my relationship and with God. And I also um, have really appreciated Tim Jennings' um, uh, covering of this topic uh, in his, um, he has done some videos on it as well. And I know back in the day, we talked about um, his work in regards to this topic as well. Um, And he also really spoke to the idea of the violence being perpetrated on these people uh, and that it wasn't um, about uh, sex. It was about, as you were talking about power. Um, So I really appreciate that we're here in this topic. Um, You raised uh, the issue and uh, Jennings is one of many 
psychologists, psychiatrists who recognize that um, your sexual orientation is not something you choose. Mm -hmm. 99.9% of the time. He does quote, and I've never heard this before, um, one incident that he knew of where a father had groomed his daughter uh, to be promiscuous. And, and she thought that the only way to love a person was to have sex with them. And that was definitely environmental. But generally, sexual orientation is, uh, is a problem with the development of the fetus in the womb when the mother is under great stress. Uh, so I don't want to go into all of that, but just to make it clear that uh, no one in their right mind would choose to be homosexual. It's just too stressful. Um, and um, we need to, like, I look at somebody with Down syndrome and I don't condemn them for having Down syndrome. Well, well it's, a, it's the parallel in this situation. Somebody who's homosexual, I don't condemn them for being homosexual because they didn't choose it. Um, it's something they were born with, this orient, different orientation from heterosexual. Um, so we, know, we can talk about this for a long time. Warren, go ahead. Well, I just wouldn't, wanted to make the, the point that it seems that society has been willing to, to accept homosexual and the whole LGBTQ plus community realizing that they didn't choose that. And unfortunately, it's the religious people that are more reluctant to. And, and that is um, that's really sad uh, to, to think that the people that God has commissioned to love everybody, regardless of who they are, uh, has the hardest time in, in loving these people that through no choice of their own are dealt a, a deck of cards that, that they didn't choose. And uh, so I think it's important that we embrace them, we include them, we love them uh, as they are and, 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 and know that, that they can have a relationship with God just like any of the rest of us. Yeah. Thanks. And I think when you're talking, you know, I'm, I'm glad you even brought up like, uh, you know, talking about down syndrome. Um, <clears throat> I'm just watching a great series called down to love uh, down syndrome folk in uh, New Zealand, um, wanting to be in relationship and, and wanting to date and have, uh, have love in their lives. And just seeing their families surrounding them and building them up and uplifting them and encouraging them and telling them that they uh, are absolutely worthy and wonderful to, to go out into the world. And yet it just saddens me so much that, you know, a, a person who is homosexual would not receive that same amount of support and love uh, that they may feel that they may not be able to be open and um, able to pursue a relationship uh, because of, of no choice of their own in their life. And, it just seems, you know, you always say, are we kinder than God? <laughs> mm. And I'm saying like, wow, you know, like I, I want to be the, the person uh, who's cheerleading and supporting and saying, you know, you know, I, I, I'll be your wingman. I'll be your wing girl. You know, like I just, I just really am passionate about uh, people wanting to be able to experience a tiny fraction of 
God's love here on this earth. And so anyways, that's just me. <laughs> well, you see, um, our, our insistence on talking to the point means that uh, we're very engaged in um, our attitudes towards uh, people who are often marginalized. Yeah. Not so much anymore, but still today. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so let's read verse 9. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow came to town as an outsider, and now he's acting like our judge. We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunged toward Lot to break down the door. So this verse really is the evidence for... Um, the knowledge that we can take away from the story is that they regarded Lot as an outsider mm-hmm. and, and did not accept him as one of their own. Uh, and now they're going to treat him worse than these two strangers uh, who are in the house. So this is really pointing towards this incident being a power issue rather than a, a sex issue, mm-hmm. although that's involved too. Um, there's resentment here. So what I want to do is uh, there are um, more than 20 references to Sodom in the scripture after Genesis 19, and only two of them mention same-sex sin. So uh, I'm not going to read all 20, but we need to read a few of them just to get the flavor of what's going on here. So uh, let's read 2 Peter uh, 2, verse 7. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yeah, so shameful immorality. So uh, that can certainly include homosexuality. But you can't from that statement conclude that it was only homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, Jude 7. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Thank you. So this uh, unnatural desires gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Um, is translated from uh, sarkos heteros, um, which simply means different flesh. And the phrase could refer to the proposed rape of the two angels, given that Jude 6 refers to the Nephilim of Genesis 6, um, the angels that did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. That's a bit of a stretch to argue that way, I think. But um, it's out there, and we can't uh, pretend it isn't. Um, But now let's look at some more cogent verses. Ezekiel 16.50. She was proud and committed detestable sins, so I wiped her out as you have seen. So the word here... um, detestable or abomination, uh, tuva, is used 117 times in the Old Testament. 
111 of these uses have no connection with same-sex behavior. The abomination includes not caring for the needy or strangers. So we'll see that when we come to Jesus' commentary. Isaiah 1, 10 to 17. Okay. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of our Lord, people of Gomorrah. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted cattle. I get no pleasure from blood, from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special day of fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good and seek justice and help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. If you will only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. But if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by the sword of your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. Thank you. So, uh, um, having heard the reading, uh, what is God most concerned about in this passage that links Israel with Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, he's challenging them to do good, to seek justice, and help the oppressed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the fact that Isaiah links uh, the oppression of the marginalized with Sodom and Gomorrah tells you that the primary problem with Sodom and Gomorrah was not uh, sexual. Mm-hmm. It can be included. But the part God is concerned about is the the way they treated uh, the marginalized people in these two cities. Which is almost ironic to me, because, you know, if we're talking about, uh, in this case, an entire city of men, uh, it, it would be, you know, beyond comprehension to think that this entire group of men are homosexuals. Uh, they must have had a terrible time with all their wives uh, that they, you know, had <laughs> and all their children that they would be able to have if this was the case. I mean, it seems uh, a rather big anomaly that this would be um, actually the case. And to think of the fact that of how they were treating people, how they, you know, even even just the discussion about uh, the daughters, the virgin daughters that were uh, being offered, uh, if this was practice, you know, like what if if Lot, who was a righteous man, was offering this, you know, what were these people doing to to girls and children and who knows, you know, 
So when we talk about sexual immorality, I don't for a second doubt that there was horrific uh, acts being committed by people who had no regard for life and the dignity of it. Um, and yeah, to to represent also when, I, you know, when I was reading or hearing that, I was thinking about, uh, you know, Ezekiel is is having probably this impression from God uh, and, and is writing this down. And the way that he's also going to convey this impression that he's receiving is also going to be colored by his experience and his cultural practices and understanding. Um, and so I just feel like there's so much space and room for the picture of a God who really is just concerned for all his children and keeping his babies safe here on earth and asking people, could we just be kind <laughs> to each other? Could we care for each other? Could we make sure that each, uh, each person receives dignity in living their lives and that they're not going to be mistreated? Uh, I just hear it uh, from the voice of a father who cares unbelievably for his children. Yeah. Well, I Thank think you. it's really significant when we look at the other passages in the Bible that talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, that they identify these other problems and not the one that we would naturally expect since we've made this a, 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 a story that condemns homosexuality or we think that it does. That's what we've made it to be when the rest yeah. of the Bible doesn't identify it that way. Uh, just one more uh, passage, and there uh, half a dozen more in the document that accompany this podcast. Jeremiah 23, 14. Jeremiah 23, 14. But now I see that the prophets of Jerusalem are even worse. They commit adultery and love dishonesty. They encourage those who are doing evil so that no one turns away from their sins. These prophets are as wicked as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah once were. Thank you. So uh, Jeremiah links Sodom's sin with adultery, idolatry, and power abuse. Uh, there are more in the Old Testament, but I want to go to Jesus. Um, in Matthew 10, 13 to 14, he referenced to Sodom. Matthew 10, 13 to 14. If it turns out to be a worthy home, let your blessings stand. If not, take back the blessing. If your householder or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, shake its dust from your feet as you leave. I tell you the truth, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than such a town on Judgment Day. That's quite a startling statement, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is that uh, the rejection of the messengers that bring the gospel will land you in more trouble than whatever was the problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. So let me move on to a little history. Christians have not always understood the sin of Sodom to be same-sex attraction. The earliest Christians read the Sodom story as a parable about inhospitability arrogance and violence, not same-sex behavior. The term sodomy was not con coined until the 11th century, 
and even then it was widely used to refer to all non-procreative sexual acts, um, not same-sex relationships specifically. Other Jewish writings, that is apart from the Bible, say God loathed the people of Sodom on account of their arrogance and punished them for having received strangers with hostility. Mm. So I, I think that's important is that um, non-canonical writers um, in the literature of Judaism um, realize the, the broader issues here in Sodom mm -hmm. that were problematic. Well, and even part of that verse uh, brings up hopefully another element that you're going to hopefully address in this one. And because I just couldn't help hearing that the part about uh, punishing them for their wicked acts, so to speak. So I'm hoping that you will also uh, speak to this idea of what actually happened to Sodom. Uh, what was the cause of what happened to Sodom? Yes, we will talk about causation um, because that's one of the uh, um, issues in this chapter. It seems to be a strong argument for the fact that God intervenes and punishes uh, wicked cities. Uh, and we're going to look at that a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. So no Jewish literature until the writings of Philo in the first century connect the sin of Sodom to same-sex behavior specifically. Even then, the same-sex reading of the story did not become the mainstream interpretation among Christians until the time of Augustine in the early fifth century. So what are we saying? We're saying that the, this story about Sodom um, which is written in Genesis, which is 1,500 years um, before the advent of Jesus. Uh, it's not linked specifically with same-sex behavior uh, uh, exclusively. There are other huge issues here um, that uh, writers, different writers are just remarking on and uh, leaving out this uh, same-sex orientation and practice uh, that is the major takeaway for Christians from this story. So what you're suggesting, Ian, is that we have, we have um, read into this verse, this story, more than what is really there and made it something that we can use to serve our own purposes. Yeah, there's, um, you know, uh, many stories have many layers. Mm -hmm. uh, and possibly one can even say that all stories are multi-layered. And when you just focus on one layer, um, you are probably using the story rather than understanding the story. Mm-hmm. Um, the last point I wish to make is that sinners have the ability to blame their suffering and wrongdoing on God and pretend that they have no fault themselves. So just to illustrate that, Psalm 44, verse 17 to 26, is a marvelous example of this attitude. Psalm 44, 17 to 26. All this has happened, though we have not forgotten you. 
We have not violated your covenant. Our hearts have not deserted you. We have not strayed from your path. Yet you have crushed us in the jackal's desert home. You have covered us with darkness and death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands in prayer to foreign gods, God would surely have known it, for he knows the secrets of every heart. But for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and oppression? We collapse in the dust, lying face down in the dirt. Rise up, help us, ransom us because of your unfailing love. Yeah. So the psalmist says, we are completely honest, God. You're asleep. Mm. You're not watching over us. Wake up and do something about the situation. Like, uh, this is uh, <laughs> almost a universal characteristic of sinners. Uh, God is to blame for the problems we have, and we pray to him in loud, repetitive uh, voices, hoping to wake him up to our plight. We're on verse 10. But the two angels reached out, pulled Lot into the house, and bolted the door. Lot has to be pulled a lot. <laughs> he, he's pulled out of Ur uh, by Terah, the, his grandfather. He's pulled out of Haran by Abraham, his uncle. He's pulled out of capture by the northern invaders of the cities in the plain um, by Abram. He's pulled into the house by the two angels, and then later he's pulled out of Sodom by the same angels. Mm. He seems to be saved in reluctance. Mm. <laughs> We're on verse 11. Then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house. So they gave up trying to get inside. So in the New Testament, um, in the book of Hebrews, hospitality is encouraged because thereby some have entertained angels. And it's talking about this incident where these angels blind these uh, perpetrators of violence to protect Lot. And then, of course, they will pull him out as we've just read. Um, so um, let's read verse um, 12 and 13. Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in the city? They asked, get them out of this place. Your son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else. For we are all for we are about to destroy this city completely. The outcry against this place is so great it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. Okay. Um, are these angels only partially informed that they have to ask Lot if he has any relatives? Um, <laughs> this, this is really interesting. Um, they, they seem to know a lot about Sodom. Uh, and yet this detail is missing. Uh -huh. I mean, they could have said, uh, take your two sons-in-law, um, take your um, 
sons have married uh, women of Sodom and get out of the place. But they start asking these questions. Um, I don't know what that says to you. Um, <laughs> in fact, I'm curious as to what it says to you. Yeah, again, it's it's something that I hadn't really thought much of before. Uh, you bring it up, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's curious that they they don't seem to uh, realize the size of of Lot's family, and they're asking him this question. Well, and also, I'm just wondering: is this the does Lot know that they're angels uh, up until this point? Um, does he, or does he just think that there are strangers coming to town? Yeah, um, maybe the fact that they blinded all the men, but maybe they didn't. Lot didn't realize what had happened. All he knew was that they had stopped attacking the house. Uh, look, the the second verse we've read here, uh, verse um, what is it, thirteen? Uh, we they claim agency. We are about to destroy this city completely. Uh, it's so great that God has sent us to destroy it. So um, that seems to settle the matter, but it doesn't, as you'll see as we carry on reading. Um, Thank you. So let's read verse 14. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought he was only joking. Okay. Um, notice the energy of Lot in this respect. Um, the angels have to pull him uh, out because of his apathy and reluctance, not because he's frail and feeble. Uh, there is an implied suggestion that it's not God but some other reality causing the, causing the destruction, which is going to happen when the angels hasten Lot to call his family out of Sodom. It's like they know this is going to happen at a particular time, and they need to get Lot out yeah. before that time arrives. If mm. they were actually destroying the city, there wouldn't be that urgency. All they have to do is get, the, uh, get Lot out, and anybody who goes with him, and then they destroy the city. But there's an urgency here uh, that these angels have that uh, Lot recognizes and say, you, you have some cognitive dissonance here between agency and action that's yeah. being taken here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting that they're they're in such a rush because they're not in control of what's going to happen. Well, you might argue that um, they're in control, but they can't control the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like a process has been started, and they know it's going to result. I'm just trying to be fair with the text here. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I'll take your point, yeah. Uh, so we're on verse 15. At dawn the next morning, the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now, or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. Hmm. So apparently there were other daughters. The destruction is at hand. 
uh, as it was with the eruption of Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii in 79 AD. The Dead Sea and the cities of the plain are in the Rift Valley. There is volcanic activity in the Rift Valley, but it does not seem to have caused the destruction of Sodom. The deadliest earthquake ever recorded was in China in 1556, <clears throat> with over 830,000 fatalities. However, there is no overt evidence of volcanic activity around the Dead Sea. Some have suggested that a meteorite destroyed the area. The actual cause of this destruction, <clears throat> we don't seem to have identified. Um, mm. But we've noticed that um, the angels know that it's going to happen, and there's an urgency to getting light out. So they're not controlling when it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. We are on verse... 16. When Lot still hesitated, the angels seized his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters and rushed them to safety outside the city, for the Lord was merciful. So Lot knows that the destruction is going to come. It is the urgency that is missing. The angels are not triggering the destruction. It is at hand, and there's the salvation of a conflicted man and his immediate family. It is one of the greatest examples of the mercy of the Lord. Um, we're on verse 17. When they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, Run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. This last statement is intriguing. It sounds as if there's a physical catastrophe that is about to happen, and they yeah. need to do their best to escape it. Now we come to verse 18 and 19 and 20. Oh, no, my Lord, Lot begged. You have been so gracious to me and saved my life, and you have shown such great kindness. But I cannot go to the mountains. Disaster would catch up to me there, and I would soon die. See, there is a little, it'll, there is a small village nearby. Please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. <laughs> this is unbelievable dialogue. <laughs> In the middle of an imminent destruction, Lord is arguing with the angels about where he wants to go. Mm -hmm. This discounting of the consequences reminds us of Abram's parallel conversation with God about how many righteous people would save Sodom. Mm -hmm. Lot feels that a small village would be safer than a large settlement like Sodom. Mm -hmm. um, but right in the midst of this uh, <laughs> predicted uh, catastrophe, he has the time to argue where he should go. <laughs> I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. So we're on verse 21. All right, and the angel 22. said. All right, the angel said, I will grant your request. I will not destroy the little village, but hurry, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. This explains why that village was known as Zor which means little place. Well, this is so apparently the angels. Yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, I thought we were destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and 
I didn't realize the destruction was going to go far and wide here. Yes, from other evidence in the Old Testament, there were five cities destroyed. Uh, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoah, and there are two more. Hmm. Um, their names escape me right now. The angels say, uh, okay, go ahead, hurry. I, I can do nothing until you arrive there. Now you've got another contradiction. First, they were hurrying the people, indicating that um, they couldn't delay the destruction. Now they say, well, we can delay the destruction if you hurry to Zohar, um, which is in a different place. Like, there's all sorts of interesting um, implications here that are very difficult to put together in one uh, logical story. Let's read verse 20 three and 24 and 25 lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon then the lord rained down fire and burned sulfur from the sky on sodom and gomorrah he utterly destroyed them along with the other cities and villages of the plain wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation so this is a, a localized extinction since every bit of vegetation is destroyed. This is a catastrophic event. And why would God want to destroy vegetation um, when it's the people that are sinners? Mm. Causation is attributed to the Lord, but this is rather prediction than causation. We'll come back to this a little bit later. Um, verse 26. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. So here's the contradiction again in the story. Angels could not destroy um, uh, Sodom until they arrived in Zoa. Was Mrs. Lot so far behind, similar to what happened to the inhabitants of Pompeii, um, that some of them... Um, escaped and others didn't. Intense heat or radiation can have this effect on organic matter. Uh, have any of you been to Pompeii? No, haven't. No. So when you visit Pompeii, you see the outlines of uh, inhabitants. They're like a shadow on the wall. Hmm. There, there's nothing left apart from that shadow. And I presume originally, um, when the people were incinerated, there was like when you cremate somebody and you have the ashes left, it's not very much. And mm. it looks more like crystals than actual sand. Mm. Uh, and so that's probably what we're talking about here. Uh, some huge source of energy which just incinerated her because mm. she was so far behind Abram and his, um, sorry, Lot and his daughters. Go ahead with verse 27 and 28. Um, Abram got up early that morning and hurried out to the place where he had stood in the Lord's presence. He looked out across the plain towards Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. So there was a huge conflagration here. And at, at its very least, Abram would have concluded 
that there weren't 10 righteous people there, and so the city was legitimately destroyed. Mm -hmm. And because he didn't have internet, he would also have concluded the lot and his whole family was incinerated. And there's a third point that we need to make, and that is he would not think that God was unjust because he bargained for 10 righteous people and that meant that there weren't 10 righteous people in the city. And that meant that he probably concluded that it was right for the city to be destroyed. And this is one of the very clear examples of um, the need for God to persuade people about his righteousness and that he doesn't just act unilaterally without uh, dialoguing with intelligent beings and helping them understand uh, what is happening in life. And we may not always understand everything about it, but that God works by persuasion rather than by violence or force. Uh, let's read verse 29. But God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. Thank you. There seems to be some vacillation on what caused the catastrophe. In some cases, it's the Lord. And then the uh, above verse is in the passive voice and doesn't indicate who caused it. Uh, and then in a third instance, the angels claim that they were sent to destroy the city. So you've got uh, three possible agencies of destruction here. Um, and we need to talk about that. Um, it is the Lord. Uh, if it's the Lord, then the above verse in the passive voice does not indicate the causation. Uh, so I want you to uh, read Matthew 10, 28. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot teach your, touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, so um, your translation has a problem. Okay. When it says fear only God, it's the translators have made an insertion. The Greek says fear him. Mm -hmm. Who has the power, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's an interpretation, not a translation. Now, some other uh, translations say, fear him. And, and so, who is the him? Mm -hmm. Does it refer to God or does it refer to the devil? Yeah, the one who is the author of death. Yeah. So to, to answer that question, we, we need to ask ourselves, um, does God destroy people or is the destruction of people uh, part of the devil's work even within the story itself it it says several times uh in verse in verse 26 it says don't be afraid uh 28 don't be afraid um you know, it's it, it's so it, it it seems inconsistent if it's referring to God that it, he says, "Don't be afraid," and then then be afraid of God. So he's mm -hmm. he seems to be saying, "Don't be afraid." 
but this is the one that you need to be afraid of, and it's not God. Thank you. So in uh, John chapter 10, um, Jesus claims the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. Mm -hmm. Now, human shepherds eat some of their sheep, <laughs> but the divine shepherd does not eat his sheep. Mm -hmm. You know, he gives his life to save his sheep. And then he makes this statement. The thief, not the shepherd, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, the good shepherd, have come to give you life, not only life, but more abundant life. Jesus is laying down a principle of interpretation here about uh, death and its causation. Mm -hmm. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, uh, just the very last part, I can quote it, but I'd like it to be accurate. Hebrews 2.14, about the last third of the verse. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. So this is uh, very clear uh, and categorical. Uh, the one who has the power of death, this means uh, the causative agent for death mm -hmm. is the devil. Yeah. And Jesus had to break that power if we were going to be saved from eternal death. Now, you'll be wow. surprised that as a conclusion to this part of the podcast on Genesis 19, I want, I want us to read uh, Deuteronomy 29, 21 to 23. The Lord will separate them from all the tribes of Israel to pour out on them all the curses of the covenant recorded in this book of instruction. Then the generations to come, both your own descendants and the foreigners who come from distant lands, will see the devastation of the Lord, of the land, and the diseases the Lord inflicts on it. They will exclaim, the whole land is devastated by sulfur and salt. It is a wasteland with nothing planted and nothing growing, not even a blade of grass. It is like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, which the Lord destroyed in his intense anger. So in the, in the Old Testament um, psyche, the Old Testament understanding of the cause of disaster, um, God is the cause. Like if you read in uh, Leviticus 26 about the curses and the blessings, the blessings come from God. And the curses or the consequences come from God. Horrific consequences. They're all from God. And over and over, uh, Moses and subsequent prophets will say, both good and evil come from God. Jesus came to correct that understanding. Yeah. And this is why on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appear and Jesus is glorified and Peter wants to build three shrines or chapels or tabernacles uh, for um, Moses, and the great lawgiver, Elijah, the great reformer, the heroes of Israel, and Jesus, Peter wants to set them on an equal level. And a voice from the cloud says, no. 
You must listen to Jesus. Moses had his day. Elijah had his day. But now is Jesus' day. Hear ye him. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus has a different understanding of the agency in violence. And he is the only eyewitness of God. And this is why it's so important to get this straight, is that um, the authority of the only eyewitness trumps all the witness of hearsay. And, and that's the whole premise of what we're trying to do with uh, these podcasts is to rediscover the God of the Old Testament seen through the eyes of Jesus because he's the one that knows what God is really like. And so we would be remiss if we didn't read Hebrews chapter 1, verse mm. 1 to 3. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the power of his command. Thank you. Here's the summary of what we've just read. God tried to communicate to us through the prophets. They never got it right. So he came in person to tell us the truth. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not saying, I'm Google. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is, if you want to understand God, I am the way to understand God. I'm the truth about God, and I have the life of God right in me. Only through me can you understand God as he truly is. So in John 17, verse 3, he will say, um, and those who worship the only true God. Why does he say that? Because we have all these parallel pictures of God that are insufficient and leave us with dilemmas mm -hmm. about causation. But it is in Jesus' maintenance of every living part of the universe that we see the life of God. He is the life giver, not the life destroyer. Yeah. We may paint God in that picture, but it doesn't make it truth, even if it's in the Bible. Well, and something that just came to me when you were saying that was this idea of um, God speaking to us in a way that we will understand. And I was just thinking of how the fact that um, Abraham had had this conversation with God, um, he, he had a closer relationship with God because of this dialogue. Then we're actually seeing angels come down to have this connection moment with Lot and his family. And I just see it like God is now the parent of the toddler who's running into the street. And literally, like when I when I heard that Lot takes the hands of the, the daughters and the people in the family, and he's like speaking in the only language and the knowledge that they will actually hear it if they say it in this way, that God is going to destroy the city and I am here to help you get out. 
that that would create this urgency that Lot clearly uh, seized onto because he knows, okay, this is something that I know is for sure. It's like the simplest, most basic thing I can possibly know and got him and his family mostly all out of the city. And to know even then that God in his mercy, and, and, and I can hear it now in this way, that he's going, I'm going to be daddy to the toddler right now. And I'm going to, I'm going to make sure they're not hit by the bus that's barreling down the street. And then knowing that potentially that Abraham is going to be able to have a reunion with Lot. I don't remember the, the whole book, but potentially that the, the powerful meeting that these two men will have to talk about the glory of God and the mercy of God, and that this will renew their faith and strength and relationship in God. Um, that to me, this is uh, really powerful and re reimagined uh, versus what I've always grown up learning. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm just praising God right now. I, I want to read you uh, a primary verse that indicates the understanding of the Old Testament on the causation of, of uh, violence. Okay, so Isaiah 45 and verse 7 says, I create the light and make the darkness. I send good times and bad times. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. This is in opposition to Jesus. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He does not say ever say, I'm the darkness of the world. Mm -hmm. um, 1 John 1 verse 5 will say, uh, in him is light and there's no darkness at all. Mm -hmm. And so um, the Old Testament prophets, including Moses, see good and evil coming from God. Yeah. Jesus comes to correct that understanding. Amen. And he says, Look, there's a supernatural evil being who creates the darkness in this world. But I have come to bring the light of the face of God into this world. And then in John chapter 1, he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. That is such a huge promise. Wow, this has been very impactful, this uh, episode. We've touched on many very important things. And so uh, I think we should pause here and uh, just give people a chance to ponder what we've touched on, and we'll continue on next time. I take your wisdom. Let's pray. Dear God, we apologize for the misinformation we've shared about you. And... We are embarrassed by our misapprehension of you. Uh, and we are happy to, to know and understand a little what you came to teach us about your Father, Jesus. Thank you so much for coming to our planet, uh, knowing full well how we would treat you, but you came anyway. And uh, when you told us the truth, we wanted to execute you, but you persisted until you had left us enough truth to come to the right conclusion about God's wonderful character. And together we say to you at this moment in time, thank you for revealing yourself as we understand 
um, the patience, the kindness, the acceptance, and your longing for everybody to be saved. A great desire wells up in our hearts to share this good news with every person we meet. And we, we look to you for eloquence and persuasiveness to share this joy. Amen. Amen. You can find the recording of our podcast on our website, uh, as well as the PDF document that we've been using. So you can follow along or at least see all the passages. And so that website is rediscoveringgod.ca. And on there, there is the, um, the, the PDF document, the uh, link for the podcast, as well as our YouTube link. We are now on YouTube. So if you want to see us live, then you can go and watch it on YouTube. Wonderful. And we'd also love to invite you to our Monday evening Zoom discussion where Ian and Warren lead us out. And um, we are currently going through the podcast uh, where we get to have discussion and really dive in a little deeper and get our, um, our, our most pressing questions answered. Um, it's a really wonderful time of fellowship and connection with the group. Um, we share in community and resources as well. We'd really love to have you join us. We're going to be meeting um, at 6.30 Mountain Standard Time. Uh, you just add in the link 403-506-9201. We'd love to see you. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can reach us at rediscoveringgod2020 at gmail.com. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you and know how this journey of rediscovering the God that Jesus knew is changing your life.